Today on the Everything 80s podcast, we're looking at the number one song for each year from 1980 to 1989. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out. It was an amazing decade where new styles of music were introduced to the public. The top songs of the 80s include a wide variety of artists and genres of music. The start of the decade still had the carryover from the abysmal disco era, and the top songs look quite different by the end. So today we're going to look at the number one song for each year in the 80s from 1980 to 1989 from the Billboard charts. But before we start, if you haven't, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen to them, I should be there. Okay, here we go. So I've done a bunch of these, you know, top of the 80s, whatever lists, whether it's, uh, bands or TV shows or whatever. So they obviously come from my perspective and viewpoint. But this, we're actually looking at the Billboard number one song for each year. So we're looking at that data. But we'll also look at some behind the scenes of each of these songs and what made it such a big hit for that specific year. The interesting thing to start with is today, it's really tough to determine what makes a number one hit. In the 80s, you could narrow it all down to the Billboard charts. That's it. These days you have those charts, but there's different forms of those charts. But then you also have the downloads of a song. Then you have the streams of the song. Then you have the YouTube views. Then you have social media engagement. And then, you know, way down the list, physical album sales. On top of that, even the digital album sales. I mean, most people don't even buy digital copies, let alone physical copies, because most people just have either Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And on the record, I listen to Apple Music, and I think it's a superior platform to listen to music than Spotify. And a lot of people want to fight me to the death on that. But I feel Spotify is just an app, and Apple Music is built into the infrastructure of the phone. And music is at the foundation of Apple, and especially the iPhone and the iPod and Apple Music and all that sort of thing. So I just find it's a superior platform. But back in the 80s, it was all about album sales. You could still buy vinyl, but cassette tapes and their singles would reveal the success of a song. The radio would introduce us to anything new. And if you liked it enough, um, you could head to the record store. Kids, you're going to have to ask your parents what a record store was and own it for yourself. Uh, If you were quick with a trigger figure, uh, you could record off the radio on your sweet dual cassette recorder, create your own mixtapes. Technology started to change, and the advent of the compact disc then brought us a quality of music we never knew existed. But CDs and CD players weren't cheap, and they would take a while to catch on and I consider them more of a 90s product even though they came out in the 80s like I and you know I didn't know really anyone that had a CD player again until the early 90s there was also MTV which would introduce us to new and exciting types of music and MTV itself was responsible for driving up album sales especially for previously unknown music and when MTV I did a whole show on MTV you can go back to the earlier episodes and check that out but when MTV launched it was in sort of select markets and those specific markets were 
um, indicating increases in album sales of, of bands they had never really sold before because they weren't getting played on the radio and they were new, either experimental sounding or whatever. But MT- MTV to this day is still responsible for actual sales. And last year, the 2019 MTV Music Awards, Billboard reported that there was a 74% increase in the sales of songs that were performed on the show. So that's how powerful MTV still is to this day. And, you know, sales are a thing, but there's so many different ways to determine what a number one song is. And, you know, a lot of artists will just go by streams, but then if you have a huge hit on YouTube, that's kind of considered the top hit. So it's kind of a weird time. But back in the 80s, where we're going now, we get a definitive number one each year because of the Billboard charts. So the funny thing with this list is, is you probably think you know, you know, which artists and songs are going to be the number one song for that year. But I guarantee most of these you're not going to see coming at all. Like you're going to think it's, you know, Michael Jackson every year or Madonna. And it's that's far from it when we're looking at the actual genuine number one. So we'll start with 1980. The number one song for that year was Blondie Call Me. So Blondie was an interesting combination of carryover from the 70s disco era, but a band that incorporated many styles. They may have been responsible for the eventual success of hip-hop as their song Rapture would feature Debbie Harry rapping and making reference to hip-hop culture and groups such as Fab Five Freddy. These, these New York bands really reflected the culture and everything that was happening around them, so that's why you see all these different influences Call Me was released in February 1980 while Blondie was part of the New Wave movement. The song was used in the soundtrack for American Gigolo uh, and was originally pitched to Stevie Nicks. The song is written from the perspective of, of the main character of American Gigolo, who is a man of the night, and was inspired by the imagery from the film. The song hit number one on April 19, 1980, would remain number one for six weeks, and would end up being Blondie's biggest single. It was also certified gold, and the single sold over a million copies. So that's what we're looking at when we mean the number one song. It's the most amount of weeks on top of the Billboard charts. Okay, the number one song of 1981, Kim Carnes' Betty Davis Eyes. I remember this song very well when I was younger, but I had no idea it came out this early in the decade. Betty Davis Eyes was not an entirely original song, as it had been also released in 1974 by writer and composer Jackie DeShannon. The original version was a bit more of an R&B style and a little more up-tempo. Karn's version would be more synth-based, which helped lead to more of its success. Synth-based music was starting to emerge in conjunction with the advances in technology and that new wave movement I was talking about. Betty Davis Eyes would hit number one on May 16th, 1981, and would stay number one for nine weeks, making it the top song of 1981. This song is a monster hit and would hit number one in 21 different countries. It also won Grammy for Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Kim Carnes helped to bring back legendary actress Betty Davis into the popular conscious. Davis, who was 73 at the time, thanked all involved with the 1974 and 1981 versions for making her relevant again. Okay, the number one song from 1982, you probably see this one coming. It's Physical by Olivia Newton-John. And if you wanted to sum up the 80s in one song, it's probably physical. This song is synonymous with the decade with its leg warmers, aerobics, fluorescent colors. 
Physical was the title track to Newton John's 12th album, if you can believe that. She put out that many. It was originally and called originally called Let's Get Physical and was written by Terry Shattuck and Steve Kipner and was first intended for a male performer. Rod Stewart was seen as the ideal male choice, and I can actually see him easily making the song work. Newton John's manager somehow accidentally heard this song and thought it would be perfect for her. He sent it her way, but she was not into it at all. She originally relented and recorded the song. Turned out to be a smart move. Physical was released later in the year on September 28, 1981, but it didn't take long to hit number one, which it did on November 21st, 1981, and then took over the world. This song is a juggernaut again and would stay number one for an astounding 10 weeks all the way till January 23rd, 1982. Two million copies were sold just in the United States and the song was certified platinum. It would be her biggest hit and made her a pop icon. It featured a pretty for the time risque uh, video and would also lead us to Holly Flax and Michael Scott performing Let's Get Ethical at Dunder Mifflin. The number one song for 1983, The Police, Every Breath You Take. I love The Police. I think this song will live on forever as well. The Police started out as more of a punk rock band and evolved into a very influential and musically diverse trio. I personally believe a lot of the change in direction came from drummer Stuart Copeland. Copeland spent a lot of time in the Middle East and adopted a lot of their unique percussion patterns, which differ a lot from the standard 4-4, you know, driving time signature you hear in 90% of all music. This led to more creativity, which helped propel the band forward, kind of like Rush and Neil Peart. Every Breath You Take was a single from their 1983 album, Synchronicity. The song was written in 1982 by Sting as a response to a breakup he was going through. People think of it as a positive song, but it has a much darker undertone to it. Every Breath I Take has some influences in Led Zeppelin's um, Dire Maker, and this song took a long time to record. It was months after they started recording that they finally finished because of constant fighting within the group. It would be released on May 20th, 1983, and was, of course was the biggest hit of 1983 and one of the biggest hits ever. It stayed number one for eight weeks and was actually the police's only number one hit. It would win the Grammy for Song of the Year along with Best Pop Performance and has been recognized by BMI as the most played song in radio history, if you can believe that. It's really because I think all genres and different types of stations can play this song. And you hear it on adult contemporary as much as classic music to 80. It just, it sort of fits across the board. Next, the number one song from 1984, Prince, When Doves Cry. I was never a huge Prince fan, but this is obviously a massive hit. It's technically not the biggest number one release that year. And this is where Billboard charts get a little hazy. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
when Dove's Cry was number one for five weeks, but Madonna's Like a Virgin would be number one for six. The problem was Like a Virgin was released later in the year, so it was only number one for a few weeks in 1984 and then four more in 1985, so it wasn't even the number one hit that year either. That's the problem when you release deeper into the year. When Dove's Cry came from the iconic Purple Rain album, and it was inspired by one of his own relationships, he composed the song in one night, and it was used to match specific scenes from the accompanying movie. One interesting thing about this song is that there's no bass line in it, and uses a Baroque-style classic sound at the end. The song was released on May 16, 1984, and was the biggest hit of that year. Of all the top songs of the 80s, when Dove's Cry might have had one of the longest-lasting impacts. It's ranked number 52 on Rolling Stone's Top 500 Songs of All Time, and is considered one of the top songs that helped shape rock music in the 80s. Okay, we're moving into the second half of the decade, but let's take a quick break. Hey, Smurfs, let's surprise Papa with breakfast in bed. Yeah! And we're back. Okay, so we're going into 1985. You probably won't see this one coming. The number one song that year, Wham! Careless Whisper. This 85 is an interesting year when it comes to music. And I've proposed when it comes to pop culture, 85 is the best year of the entire 80s. And I've done a whole show on that, especially, you know, with all the movies released, the cartoons, the technology, the toys, the music. But, you know, the year was a real mixed bag when it came to music. Careless Whisper would be the second lowest total weeks at number uh, at number one with three uh, for the whole decade. It also faced a ton of competition. We'll see more of this in a moment. Among the other top songs in 1985 that spent at least two weeks on the Billboard number one included Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is, We Are the World, Tears for Fears Shout, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, Starship, We Built the City, amazing songs. But back to Careless Whisper, written by the great George Michael, we'll see him again on this list, spoiler alert, and Andrew Ridgely, was one of the earliest songs they ever written when they were 17 years old. It was based on Michael's own childhood shortcomings, being an overweight kid with glasses and liking a blonde girl who wasn't interested in him. It was released in the UK in 1984, where it was a huge hit, was number one for three weeks, and was the fifth biggest sing- selling single of the year. Careless Whisper then came out in the US in February 1985, where it would go on to be the number one song of 1985 on Billboard. But it was interestingly credited as Wham! featuring George Michael. Michael was admittedly never a big fan of the song, but it had some lasting power and became a classic for smooth radio everywhere. Okay, the top song of 1986. You probably won't see this one coming either, and I have a connection to this song I'll explain. And it is That's What Friends Are For by Dionne Warwick. And hopefully you're not just tearing up at the mere mention of this song. But my connection was this was my grade 8 graduation theme song, which we were forced to sing. That's What Friends Are For was originally a movie song recorded by Rod Stewart in 1982 for the movie Night Shift. It was written by the epic Burt Bacharach and then re-recorded by Dionne Warwick, Elton John, Gladys Knight, and Stevie Wonder, but it was credited as Dion and Friends. 
The song was released as a charity single to bring awareness to AIDS, along with raising money for research. The song and the money it raised were both a massive success, with it generating over $3 million for the AIDS research. They put it out in October 1985, but it wouldn't reach number one until January of 1986, where it stayed number one for four weeks, making it the top song of 1986. And back to my grade eight graduation performance, I lip synced the entire thing. Okay, we're plowing along. It's now 1987. If you know your pop culture history, you'll know this one, and it is the Bangles Walk Like an Egyptian. So if you're too young to remember this, there was a period in the 80s when all things Egypt were huge for some reason. There was some sort of Egyptian renaissance happening with things like this song, and there was a big... um, Egyptian tour that was going through like different museums and exhibits and all this stuff. And Steve Martin did the famous performance of the King Tut song on Saturday Night Live. Walk Like an Egyptian came from the Bangles album Different Light, which was released in 1986. The song actually goes back to 1984 when a demo of it was first recorded. It bounced around for a bit before eventually being offered to the Bangles. It came out in November 1986, but wouldn't become a number one hit until 1987, where it would be the top song of that year. This song is unique because it's the first number one for an all-female group that played their own instruments. When you combine this with their other massive hit, Manic Monday, you have the Bangles emerging as one of the top groups of the entire 1980s. An interesting fact about Walk Like an Egyptian is that it was actually banned for radio play after the 9-11 attacks. There was some reason this song was singled out. It's a really bizarre story if you look into it and why they sort of pinpointed this whole thing. And it just sort of caught a lot of people off guard. But there's a fun fact for you. The year is 1988, and we are seeing our old friend George Michael, this time with the song Faith. Not that he was ever underappreciated in his time, but George Michael really was an incredible artist. Like go back and listen to a lot of that old stuff, whether even when it was with Wham, but then when he went solo, Faith was an amazing song that it could be released in many different decades, I think, and still sound fresh and not dated. So this is when Michael uh, broke free from Wham and put out his first solo album, also entitled Faith. The idea behind this song that I think makes it sound like it could work in multiple decades was to take a real rock and roll kind of classic approach to it. It used that classic rock beat along with a traditional sort of Bo Diddley guitar sound to it. The whole song is written and arranged and produced by George Michael. It actually hit number one late in December 1987, but carried over into the new year. And Billboard puts this as the number one song of 1988, where it stayed at the top for four weeks. Faith was also number one in Australia and Canada and reached number two, surprisingly, in the UK. I guess they just didn't get over the split of Wham. Faith also had some staying power to it, and it spent nine weeks in the top 10. It was in the top 20 songs for 11 weeks and stayed for an amazing 15 weeks in the top 40. That's huge, especially in the 80s. Okay, so we're rounding the end, coming to the last year of the decade, 1989. I'll bet a million dollars you won't know this is the number one song unless you're a music aficionado. It's Chicago, Look Away. Again, another surprising song to close out the decade when you look at all these other top hits. But the thing is, 1989 might have been the best year for epic songs of the 80s. Look at some of the other number one hits that year. Okay. Poison, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, Paula Abdul, Straight Up, Debbie Gibson, Lost in Your Eyes, 
The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics, Roxette's The Look, She Drives Me Crazy by the Fine Young Cannibals, I'll Be There for You, Bon Jovi, Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block, Blame It on the Rain, Millie Vanilli, then We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. It's an amazing year. This is barely scratching the surface of the number ones from 1989. Uh, there, there were so many of them. There was, you know, there's only so many weeks in the year and they're all fighting it out and just epic song after epic song it continues to be released but chicago somehow just stuck with it i think why this was the top song of the year is because it's the ultimate power ballad from a band that's more synonymous uh with the early 80s and you know even though it's only a decade you know it's still a long time from the stretch of 1980 to 1989 or you know at least into the late 70s so sometimes it's like you know, even short-term nostalgia is still powerful. It doesn't always have to be a 25, 30, 40-year gap, just, you know, the space of an entire decade. And then sometimes people get that reappreciation for a band they liked and maybe hadn't listened to for six, seven years. So I think that's part of the success behind Look Away. It was the second single from their album, Chicago 19. And the song is a bit of a weird anomaly when it comes to the Billboard charts. It was number one on the adult contemporary chart, but was not number one on Billboard in 1989. So it went into the charts in September 1988 and was number one for two weeks that year. By January 1989, it had already been certified gold and sold more than any other single in 1989. This somehow, again, like I said, the Billboard charts were still a little hazy back then, but this somehow allowed it to be the number one song of 1989, even though Janet Jackson's Miss You Much and Phil Collins' Another Day in Paradise were both tied for most weeks at number one with four. So again, what it looks like is it came down to more sales of singles and then the fact that it was also number one on the adult contemporary. So that was, I guess, the tiebreaker between those three songs. So let's start winding it down here, and we'll look at a few other notable achievements when it comes to discussing number ones. So the most amount of number one hits in the 80s is obviously Michael Jackson with nine, followed by Madonna, Whitney Houston, and Phil Collins with seven. The top artists by total weeks at number one combined through the decade, obviously again Michael Jackson with an astonishing 27 weeks spent with a number one hit. Second place is Lionel Richie with 21. Then it drops off 16 with Paul McCartney and George Michael tied. So that's probably more in tune with what you're thinking of, you know, when it comes to number one hits. But if you're paying attention, the song that ruled the decade with the most weeks at number one was Physical by Olivia Newton-John with 10 weeks atop the Billboard charts. So that's the fact of the podcast right there if you need any more dinner conversation. Okay, so thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this show and a look back at the top songs from 1980 to 1989. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. I will also be back soon with a brand new episode. Don't you dare miss it. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs>